Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. are in kindergarten and below, you may leave now to go to kids' worship time. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Proverbs. You didn't think you'd hear a Christmas message on the book of Proverbs, did you? Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Now, one of the worst Christmas movies, and this is based on Rotten Tomatoes rating and pretty much general consensus. You may like this movie, but it's considered one of the worst Christmas movies. It's called Christmas with the Cranks. Some of you like that movie. (laughs) Anyway, it came out in 2004 starring Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis. And so the movie begins with their daughter announcing that she's going off on a Peace Corps assignment in Peru following the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And so the parents are like, awesome, our daughter's going to be gone. And then they basically, the Tim Allen character, his name is... um, I can't remember his name. Luther. Luther realizes that they spent $6,000 last year on Christmas. And so they decide, we're going to boycott Christmas this year, and we're going to use that $6,000, and we're going to go on a cruise. And so they decide to go on a cruise, and their, their neighbors get upset because they have to participate in all the things that make the neighborhood look good with the lights. And then all of a sudden, on Christmas Eve, they get a phone call from their daughter. And she says, I'm back in America. I'm at the Miami airport. I'm going to be home in 12 hours. And so they have to cancel their plans to go on this cruise. And they have to hustle around to get the house ready and decorated and and to try to get everything ready in 12 hours to meet her new fiancé. And so they panic because they boycotted Christmas and they have to pack in weeks of all of this stuff in just a few hours. And so the rest of the movie is just mass chaos of them trying to get ready. And you watch the movie and you're just tired by the time it's over because they pack so much into 12 hours. It just wears you out watching it. Now, I told my wife this morning, I'm going to ask you guys a question, and I'm I'm sure nobody's going to say yes to this. At least don't say it out loud. Do not raise your hand. Do not say it out loud, but I'm going to ask the question. Have you ever wanted to boycott Christmas yourself and not deal with all of the stress? Now, we may never say that out loud, that we would want to boycott Christmas, but for some of us, it would be a whole lot easier not to have to deal with the stress that Christmas brings. You know, Christmas can wear you out. Christmas can stress you out. Christmas can bring a lot of anxiety. So I want us to pause this morning. I want us to take a deep breath, and I want us to think about... What really matters at Christmas time? A few weeks ago, I was reading a book, and, I, and this wasn't a Christmas book. And I came across Proverbs chapter 30. And as I read this passage of Scripture, it took me on a journey to discover how Jesus shows up in a little prophetic gem, if you will, in this passage of Scripture. And it got me thinking about how often does a messianic 
prophecy about Jesus show up in Proverbs of all places. So let's read the words of Augur. When was the last time you heard the words of Augur? Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 1. We're just going to look at the first five verses. The words of Augur, son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The writer of this proverb, Augur, he's exhausted. He's worn out. He is frustrated because he's lacking knowledge. He's lacking understanding. He's trying to find out something, and he's struggling, and the struggle mentally, physically, spiritually wears him out to the point of exhaustion. You have to ask the question, what's he struggling with? What's he exhausted from? Where has his knowledge reached its limit? He has this angst that he does not know the Holy One of Israel the way that he should. He starts out in verse 1, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary. I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom. Nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. I don't have the knowledge. I don't know this God the way I would really like to know. This God is just too big. He's too powerful. He's almost unknowable. Deep inside the heart of every believer is a deep desire to know God. Not just know about God, but to know God. Him. It was read earlier, but these are the words of Paul in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, when we get frustrated or we get weary or we get tired or we get exhausted or we get stressed out, what do we need to do? Do we need to just try harder? Do we need to just push through? Have a stiff upper lip and just grin and bear it? You know, our greatest need when we're stressed out, when we're weary, when we're tired, our greatest need is just to take a step back and get reacquainted with your God. To know who God is. To know this Holy One of Israel. And, and the, the writer of the Proverbs, Augur here, is like, I'm tired, I'm frustrated. I, I can't figure God out. I don't know God the way I need to know God. 
And so let me ask you a question this Christmas. Do you truly know your God? I didn't say know about God. Do you know the living God? As Francis Schaeffer would say, the God who's there. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? So let's explore this passage of Scripture this morning, and I want us to explore three descriptions of the Holy One. Three descriptions of the Holy One. Now, notice there at the end of verse 3, he calls God the Holy One. That's language that's directly from Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 40 here in a minute. The Holy One of Israel. But the first thing that we find out from this passage of Scripture is that He is our sovereign Creator. We see this in verse 4. Augur, the writer, asks four rhetorical questions, and these are all meant to be answered with, Only God. Only God. So, so look at the questions he asks. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has knowledge of the heavens? Who has knowledge of eternal things? Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Now, it's been very windy the past few weeks. Some of you may have had damage from the wind. Who can gather that wind in his fist and just stop that wind? Just like that. The answer, only God. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Think about the vastness of the ocean. I was talking with my wife a couple of weeks ago, and we were playing this game, Would You Rather? And the question was, would you rather go to space or would you rather go to the bottom of the ocean? And my wife loves space. She said, space is a lot, space is actually safer to go than the bottom of the ocean. People have been to space and come back. (laughs) People have not been to the bottom of the ocean. Even on our own planet, the bottom of the ocean. God knows the depths of the bottom of the ocean. Who has established the ends of the earth? What's his name? What's his name? Now, I want you just to humor me and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. And for some of you that were part of my Wednesday night class a few weeks ago, um, we looked at this in depth, but I told you back then that... This sermon that I'm preaching today took me on a journey to Isaiah 40 because it's a lot of the same language. This is beautiful language about God. So these are rhetorical questions that Augur and Proverbs ask, that Isaiah here asks about God. And and the rhetorical question is meant to be answered with only God. So let's look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 40. By the way, we're going to do a little Bible drill this morning. So um, we're going to be in Proverbs, Isaiah, and then we're going to go to the New Testament here in just a moment. So be ready to turn pages. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40, or swipe. Chapter 40, verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And here we go. 
Look at the language here. It's very similar to what Augur asked in Proverbs chapter 30. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him as counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In verse 10 and in verse 9, Isaiah says, Behold your God. Behold your God. Now what does that mean, behold your God? Behold means look, observe, see, fix your eyes, get to know this God. He's the creator. He's got the whole world in his hands and then some. He knows the depths of the ocean. He has everything under His sovereign control. Not only is God the creator of all things, but He's the sustainer of all things. He governs all things. He's in control of all things. I can't think of any other time in my life where we've lived in a period of unrest, in uncertainty, economic, political, health-wise. We live in a nation that feels like it's going off the rails. We live in a time of anxiety where things are spinning out of control and we just need to stop and behold our God. Who's our God? The God who's sovereign, the creator, the one who's got everything in his hands, the one who's in control of all things. During times like this, it's good to get reacquainted with the God who is our sovereign creator. Job says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This Christmas, are you trusting in the sovereign God who's your creator? And I'm going to say it over and over again. Behold your God. This is your God. Look to this God. Keep your eyes fixed on this God. Okay, Isaiah 40 gives us echoes of Proverbs 30. So let's turn back to Proverbs 30. I said the first thing that we saw is that God is our sovereign creator. But what's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture back here in Proverbs? The second thing we see is His Word is absolute truth. His Word is is absolute truth. Look at verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God. God's word is without error. This word in the original language here in the Hebrew that talks about true really means it's stood the test of time. 
It's been refined in the fire and it's come out pure with, with, with no impurities whatsoever. God's word is pure. God's word's flawless, flawless. God's word has stood the test of time. God's word is without error. Every word of God proves true. Every word. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Jesus, when he was praying in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. With a capital T. Absolute truth. You see, we also live in a culture where many professing Christians are either abandoning God's Word altogether or they're downplaying it and they're watering it down. They don't want to submit to God's Word as truth. They don't want to stand up and say, every word of God proves true. Every word from Genesis to maps. Some of you don't get that. I got maps in the back of my Bible here, okay? You're thinking I'm saying Genesis to Revelation. Every word of God proves true. And it seems like many Christians are embarrassed by God's word. Some pastors don't want to preach the fullness of God's word, the difficult parts of God's word. Either God's word is absolutely true, every single word, or it's not. And if it's not, then why are we here? And since it is we must submit to this word where it says every word of God proves true. It's the infallible, inerrant word of God without any mixture of error. So this Christmas season, are you submitting under the authority of God's word? His word that is absolute truth. So number one, God is our sovereign creator. Number two, his word is absolute truth. But let's look at the third thing, and it's in the second half of verse 5. He's a refuge for the weak and weary. He's a refuge for the weak and weary. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. God's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. How did Augur start this conversation? I'm weary, I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. And then he says, God's a shield to those who find refuge in him. Psalm 18, 30, verses 31. This God, behold your God, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord and who is rock except our God? Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. I like that very present help. Some of you may need God right now, and He's there for you. Listen to the words of David as he praised the Lord for delivering all of his enemies, especially King Saul in 2 Samuel twenty-two, thirty-one. This God, behold your God, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Augur was weak and weary. 
He was frustrated. He was at the end of his rope. He says, I don't know God the way I should know God. And then he begins to think, who's created all this? Who's the sovereign creator? Who's got the wind in his hands? Who's got the oceans measured? Who is this God? Well, he's a God that also has a word that is truth. And he's a God that I can take refuge in. He's a God that gives me strength. I can rest in the goodness of this great God. And so if you're weary this Christmas, if you're like Augur, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm exhausted, I'm weary, rest, take refuge in this good God. But notice the question that Augur asks at the end of verse 4. What is his name? What's the name of this God? Well, if you know your Old Testament, the name of this God is Yahweh, the living God. The Holy One of Israel, behold your God. Now at this point, I could have preached this sermon that I just preached in a Jewish synagogue and I would get a hearty amen from all the Jewish people there because they believe in the God of the Old Testament. They would say God's creator, God's word is truth, and God is a refuge. Amen. But I want you to notice the wording here. What's his name? What's his son's name? Did you catch it? What's his son's name? This takes us to the New Testament. This takes us to prophecy. Well, we know the son's name. His name's Jesus. Jesus is the son of the living God. Matthew 1.21 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What's his name? What's his son's name? Jesus. Because he'll save his people. Do you know what the word Jesus is? It's it's basically the Greek version of Joshua. Yeshua. Joshua or Jesus means salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord saves. What did the angel Gabriel announce in Luke 1, 31-33? To Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What's his son's name? What's his son's name? His name's Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is great. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the King of the Kingdom. Now, in this proverb, it's giving glory to God, the Father, the Holy One of Israel. Who is this? Who is this? What's His name? His name's Yahweh, the living God, the the, the God who created. Well, what's His Son's name? We don't get the answer in Proverbs. It's just like an open-ended question. We know what his son's name is. His son's name's Jesus. You see, God the Father, the Holy One of Israel, is the invisible, immortal, only wise God. God the Father is spirit. God the Father has no flesh. God the Father has no parts. God the Father is spirit. He's invisible. John 4, 24, what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. 
1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's the invisible God. He's spirit. 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You cannot see God the Father. He's the invisible, holy one of Israel. What happened when Moses wanted to see God? Remember what Moses asked God? Exodus 33, 18-23, Moses wants to see the full glory of God. Moses said, please show me your glory. I want to see it. I want to see the glory. That's amazing coming from Moses. What had Moses already seen? The burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of smoke, the water coming from the rock. And Moses is like, that's not good enough for me. I want to see your face, God. I want to see you in all your glory. And what does God say to Moses? I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hands until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses, you can't see my face. No one can see my face. If you saw God the Father in all of his glory, you would be incinerated. So he puts Moses in the backside, the cleft of the rock. The Father... The living God, the Holy One of Israel, what's His name? Behold your God, He's the invisible, only wise God, who is spirit that no one has ever seen. Yet the question in the Proverbs is, what's His Son's name? Jesus. So Jesus coming in the flesh shows us in physical, visible form the glory of the invisible God. Jesus coming in the flesh is the visible glory of the invisible God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. You can see the glory of Jesus. You can't see the glory of the Father. We've seen Jesus glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, because He came in the flesh. John 1.18, no one's ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He's made Him known. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Colossians 2, 9, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then Hebrews 1, 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the radiance, the shining forth, the visible expression of the invisible God. 
If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. No one can see the Father. That's why Jesus came to manifest or show us the Father. Now, one of the most profound places where this is taught, and we're going to finally get out of Proverbs, okay, and we're going to go to the New Testament. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three through six. And I want you to remember the language that God used to Moses. You can't see my face. You can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. You can't see my face and live. Who is this God that you can't see his face? What's his son's name? You can't see my face. Okay? I want you to remember that language. Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what in the world's going on in this passage of Scripture? Three truths. Truth number one. Unbelievers are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. Unbelievers are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. Notice what it says there in verse 3. Our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. Perishing means to die and go to hell. There are, though, there are those that right now, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're perishing, they're dying and going to hell. And what's going on with them? Verse 4, in their case, those that are perishing, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded their minds. The minds of unbelievers. Now, what are unbelievers prevented from seeing? Unbelievers know the facts of the gospel. You can talk to an unbeliever and share the facts of the gospel. They can track with you. They can understand that Jesus died on the cross. They can understand he rose again. They can understand mere facts. That's not what they're blinded from seeing. Notice what Paul says there. Verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not just the facts that he died and he rose again, but they're blinded from seeing. And that word seeing there is a very rare word. It means to see clearly. In other words, Jesus is not beautiful or compelling or glorious to a person who's been blinded by the devil. They can nod their head and say, yes, I agree he died on the cross. Yes, I agree he rose again. Yes, I agree he's coming back. They can nod with you and agree with that. But in their heart, they're blinded from seeing their need for Jesus in all of his glory. The glory of Christ is what they're blinded from. Not just the mere facts. And so they cannot see their need for a Savior. They are blinded to the glory of Christ. So something has to happen deep in their heart to take those blinders off. So the second thing that Paul says there, and that's in verse 5, 
The gospel must be preached to unbelievers. The message of Christ, okay, they're blinded. They can't see Jesus. How do they see Jesus? Well, we've got to preach the gospel to them. Notice what Paul says there in verse 5. For what we proclaim, what we preach, what we declare with authority, what we boldly proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as servants for your sake. You see, for unbelievers to truly see the glory of Christ, they must hear from your mouth and my mouth the good news of who Jesus is. You and I need to boldly share with them who Jesus is. Now there's a Christmas song we don't often sing. I was going to sing it, but maybe I won't. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain. What does that sound like to you? We're not going to keep it secret. We're going to drive two hours and go on a 14er and climb all the way up there and yell across the whole state of Colorado, Jesus is born. No, I mean, that's metaphorically speaking. But the point is, is we're going to be bold about it. We're going to go up on a mountain and we're going to tell everybody that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, we need to be telling people that are blinded that Jesus died the, the death that we deserve to die. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's alive. He's victorious. Behold your Christ. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus walking by? Remember what Isaiah said? Behold your God. What is Jesus? What's said about Jesus by John the Baptist? John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold means look. Behold the Lamb. Behold your God. What's his name? What's his son's name? Behold your God. Behold your Lamb, Jesus Christ. But then they're blinded, and you present the gospel, but there's one thing you cannot do that only God can do. And that's the third thing here. God must shine light in their hearts so that they can see the glory of Christ. God must shine the light in their hearts so that they can see the glory of Christ. Notice the the Genesis 1 language there. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light. So we get the word lamp, lampo. Let, let God shine light in those blinded eyes and those dead hearts. It, it reminds us of the Isaiah chapter 9 prophecy about the, the son, the prince of peace that's going to be born. In Isaiah 9 too, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them the light has shone. God must sovereignly and supernaturally shine that light in the depth of the heart of a person who's blinded to take those blinders off so that then they can see the glory of who Christ is. They've been made alive, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 4-5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You've been made alive. Your eyes have been opened. You've been supernaturally reborn. You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure you've heard of him, one of the great American pastors back during the, the First Great Awakening, during the colonial period in our country. He, he preached a famous sermon in 1734 called A Divine and Supernatural Light. And he said this, He that is spiritually enlightened truly understands and sees the glory of Christ, or has a sense of it. He does not merely rationally believe that Christ is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God deep in his heart. It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's one thing to have your heart invaded and your eyes opened and to see it for the first time. And what Jonathan Edwards does in the sermon is he gives an illustration about honey. He says, it's one thing to know the facts about honey. You can never have tasted honey, and, and I can tell you about honey. Honey's sticky. It's kind of amberish, brownish, depending on where it's from. It's made by bees. I can give you a cookbook and give you some recipes on how to bake with honey. I can give you a great explanation about honey, and you can rationally track in your mind. I, I can understand what honey is, but Jonathan Edwards says, it's not until you take that little spoon and you take that honey out and you put it on your favorite biscuit and you eat it. Then you truly know what honey is. It's one thing to know about honey. It's one thing to eat the honey. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Jonathan Edwards' point is this. It's one thing to know about Jesus, to know the facts about Jesus, to have some information about Jesus. It's another thing to have your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit or deep in your heart. You can now see Jesus, so much that you trust him, you love him, you desire him. He's real to you. It's no longer just this head knowledge of I know he exists. It's, no, my eyes have been opened and he's real. I have tasted and seen that Jesus is good. He says this at the end of the sermon. This knowledge of Jesus will wean us from the world and raise the inclination to heavenly things. It will turn the heart to God as the fountain of good, and to choose Him for the only portion, and it will dispose the soul to give itself up entirely to Christ. It will wean us from the world. How many of us need to be weaned from the world? You know the image. I'm not going to give you the image of what weaning is. But your, your, your diet is on the things of the world. How much do we feast on the world? Do we focus on earthly things? Do we need to have our eyes open to the glories of Christ? It was in the dead of winter, and it was a snowstorm. It was a sunny morning, and the 16-year-old boy was walking the streets trying to find a place to go to church. He didn't know where to go. It was blowing snow. And so he decided to walk into this little country church. Didn't even know the name of it. Walked in. Found out it was a Methodist chapel with about 12 to 15 people that Sunday morning. Well, he sat at the back because he got there late and he was all, you know, all wet. And the pastor was sick that day. So it wasn't even the real pastor. It was a layperson that, 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 that got up to preach. And this layperson was not very eloquent. Kind of mumbled over his words. But as that layperson was preaching to, the, to that young boy on the back row. He looked at him directly and I said, Sir, you look miserable. You look miserable. 
And the young man's like, is he talking to me? And he's like, yeah, I'm talking to you. He said, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look to Jesus and live. In that moment, the Holy Spirit opened that young man's eyes. Here's what that young man said. When I was in the hand of the Holy Spirit under conviction of sin, I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became to me an intolerable burden. It was not so much that I feared hell as I feared sin. And all the while, I had upon my mind a deep concern for the honor of God's name. This young man, 16-year-old, walked into a church, didn't know anything about it. Fifteen people there, a country lay preacher, looked at him and says, You look miserable. Look to Jesus. And on that day, January 6th, 1850, you know who it is. Charles Spurgeon got saved that day. That was the salvation experience of Charles Spurgeon. Probably one of the greatest preachers of all time. But what did the preacher say to him? Behold your God. Look to your God. Look to your Savior and live. Now, let's bring this back around to Proverbs where we started. Remember, Augur was weary. He was worn out. He was exhausted. He was trying to understand his creator. And he realized that God is a sovereign creator. He realized that God's word is truth. He realized that God was a refuge for the weak and the weary. And we saw that Isaiah 40 passage was a parallel passage to Proverbs 30. But I want to show you on the screen how Isaiah 40 ends. You know how it ends. See, here's the thing. We need knowledge of God but we need something deeper than just knowledge. We need the presence and the strength and the power of God in our lives. And that's what God gives us. Not only does He give us knowledge of Himself, but listen to the end of Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What does it mean to wait? Upon the Lord. Well, it means that we trust in God, who's our sovereign creator. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? It means we submit to this word that is absolute truth. Every word of God proves true. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? It means we take refuge in Him for the weak and weary. What does it mean that we wait upon the Lord? We look to Jesus as the glory of God in the flesh. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Behold your God. 
Behold your Christ. Let's bow our heads this Christmas and honor our Savior. To this room this morning who are weary, they're exhausted, they're running and they're fainting. Maybe some are at the end of the rope. Maybe some have come into this place with financial problems. Maybe some have come into this room with relational family problems. Maybe some have come in here with work-related problems. Maybe some have come in with health-related problems. Lord, we've come into this place, and there may be some of us that are just exhausted. We're weary. We're stressed at this time of season. And we need to be reminded that, Jesus, you're our sovereign creator. Every word of yours proves true. And you're a refuge for the weak and weary. And, Jesus, you're the glory of God in flesh. Help us, Holy Spirit, to behold our God. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Help our gaze to be heavenward. Doesn't necessarily mean, Father, that you take the, the problems away, but it does mean that our perspective is on you and who you are. And may we all be like Paul who said, I want to know Jesus, the, the unsurpassable riches of knowing Christ my Lord. I consider everything as, as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus and gaining Jesus. May we not miss the forest for the trees this Christmas, Lord, because we're so wrapped up in everything that's not you. Maybe good things. Strengthen us. Help us to claim the promise of this, of this passage in Isaiah that you will mount us up on wings like eagles. We'll walk and not faint. You'll, you'll strengthen us. You'll give power. You'll raise us up. We need to hear that, Lord. We need to hear that. We need to believe that. Deep in our hearts that you can comfort us. You can strengthen us. You're with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for giving us strength. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.